You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Hey, folks, we are cruising well into season six, and we've got a guest today. And I had the privilege of having lunch uh, with our guest through a, a dear friend of mine and a mutual friend of ours, Steve Laposa. Uh, Steve at the time was the chairman of the elders of our church and just a, a phenomenal human being. And, and he's like, look, you, you need to meet this guy. And so uh, we had lunch and I, I came away. We traded books. I, I've got a book and my guest today also wrote a book. And man, I, I'm just really excited to chat. Uh, today's guest is Walt Rakowicz. Uh, Walt, one of my favorite things about Walt, aside from just his enthusiasm for life and, and his optimism, is that he took over a giant S&P 500 company in 2008. And listen, we're all growing old and 2020 did a number on us. But I think we still remember 2008. The company was Prologis, S&P 500 company. And uh, right before Walt stepped in as the CEO, their stock had plummeted from $70 a share to $2 a share in 10 months. They were actually the third worst performing company on the S&P 500. Uh, I, I imagine, Walt, you don't tend to get recognition for that, uh, for being the worst. So Walt stepped in and and one of the reasons I'm fascinated to talk to him is what he did in the way of turnaround. And, you know, we we talk about all kinds of leadership things on this podcast. And and I think that the jury's out, right? What's harder, building something from scratch or turning something around that is tanked or tanking? Walt, Walt did a, a giant turnaround. He's also worked for Price Waterhouse in the past. He has an MBA from Harvard. Uh, he served on nonprofit boards. Currently, Walt is serving on Colorado Uplift, which is dedicated to helping uh, urban youth get out of poverty. And uh, Walt's book, which is what we're going to get into, is Transfluence. And listen, folks, it's right up my alley because it deals with emotional health. It's not just business skills. It's also what's going on under the surface in a leader. How do you build trust and so on? So, Walt, welcome to the podcast. Great to be on, Steve. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure to be on this podcast really is. So thanks for having me. Yeah, let's start with turnaround. I've I've chatted to a few people who come into a church or a or a business and things are really bad. Uh, and so in your case, I think things were heading south in a hurry. What do you do when you first get into a company and you're the leader? You're now responsible, but you did not get them into this situation. How do you begin to build trust and how do you begin to figure out what needs to change? So in my case, uh, first of all, Steve, let me just kind of level set the situation. I had actually been in the company for about 15 years prior to, to me coming back. And so essentially what happened, um, I was the number two person in the company, um, and really had a, what I would consider a fallout with the CEO and left as a result of that. And the fallout was really associated mostly with the way that he managed people. You know, he was a very, very bright, bright individual. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking that much about him, but, um, but I, I, I believe that he was managing the company in the wrong way, managing people in the wrong way. He was a fairly narcissistic type guy. And, uh, so didn't really like to delegate a lot to people and didn't like to listen a lot to people and sometimes twisted the truth. And in that regard was, was dishonest. Man, I just didn't like being in that environment. So I left the company and I had been gone for 10 months. And, and when I had left the company, the stock was trading at an all-time high, as you mentioned, 70. So you actually hit close to $75 a share 
But over that 10-month period of time, of course, the S&P 500 got crushed because 2008 was a tough year for everybody. I think all stocks in the S&P 500 were down about 40% that year. So this is not a a, um, rosy environment. But when our stock was down 96%, um, obviously the market was telling us that we had made some mistakes leading up to that. And I could see some of those mistakes. I I would never have seen uh, the magnitude of them, but I could see that it was coming, which is why I wanted to leave. Well, um, so to answer your question, I did have the, um, the, I was fortunate in that I knew a lot of the people there because I had worked for the 15 years prior to that. So after a 10 month hiatus of being away, when the board called me to come back and be the CEO and turn around the company, I was in a very uh, advantageous position in that I saw the way the company was mismanaged. And I also saw and I knew many of the people. In fact, I had actually hired many of the people that were there. So in some respects, the truth of the matter is that I had established trust already in the organization prior to leaving. But, and so when I came back, the good news is that I didn't have to start from scratch. But, you know, you you mentioned that word trust, and, and it, it really is the cornerstone of my book. I call it transfluence. And transfluence actually stands for transformational influence. I believe that the best leaders in the world are the leaders that create transformative influence in the lives of others. In other words, they they come to work every day and it's not about them. And leaders who make it about them don't establish trust because people don't like to work for other people who are narcissistic or who are very much about themselves. Lead, people like to be led by, the, by leaders that focus on the lives of those they're leading, their flock, you know. And so I, I call it transformative influence because I think it's the number one objective that a leader needs to have. And that is to come to work every day saying, how do I make an influence in the lives of the people I lead? And if I approach everything I do in that way, I will build trust over time because people will recognize that it isn't about me, but it's about them. That's really, Steve, I have to tell you, in in a nutshell, that's how I went tried to at least go about, none of us are perfect, but tried to go about leading the flock. And over time, I think we were able to, we, and I say we, the management team, because it wasn't me, but we were able to influence people in a positive way such that they came to work every day wanting to help turn around the company. I mean, yes, their jobs were at stake, but the fact of the matter is people have choices. And, you know, I mean, we we needed them to work as hard as they could work. And people work hard when they trust you. And, And so that's how we went about, we meaning myself and the management team, went about thinking about how you turn around a company. That's fascinating because I, I guess there's two different environments that you could step into with a turnaround. One is where trust is broken and the people are highly suspicious of the next leader. They almost transfer their suspicion onto the new one. The other one is trust is broken and people are so keen for the next leader to uh, get them going. Which one of those two feels right of what you stepped into? I think it was probably more the latter of the two because I, I feel like... Um... Look, you could probably get better information by talking to other employees, but I, I do think that I had built a certain level of credibility in the company that was positive. 
not negative. And I think when I came back to the company, um, I, I was given that latitude, if you will. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it was probably more of the negative. I mean, excuse me, of the of the latter of the two, which yeah. is to say, we actually do trust Walt. We trust what we've seen over fifteen years, but um, it you know, so you're still in some respects, you're still starting from scratch, because people are skeptical about whether or not you can do it. Um, not not necessarily who you are as a person, but whether or not you can do it. And I would also say that. It wasn't just my employees that had to trust us. It was people on the outside that didn't know me as well. It was shareholders, bondholders, the cities and counties that we operated in. Didn't I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that actually don't know you, notwithstanding the fact that you had been there for 15 years. They just never knew you. And that in their eyes, there's probably more skepticism. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. I've got one more question on trust. And then I, I want to talk about a next section of your book. But I'm curious. What are you looking for in your team that shows you that they've given you their trust? Like you, let's say you come in and you know it's going to be a timeline of getting established. And, but at some point along the way, you're looking for indications, okay, this is health now. Um, and I can tell it's health because of the way they're responding. What signs are you looking for, Walt? You know, that's a really good question. And I'll just tell you off the top of my head, the one thing, well... And we, we'll probably talk about this more as we go on, but I, I talk about leadership characteristics, traits. People ask me all the time, when you're hiring somebody, who do you look for? What do you look for? Assuming a certain level of competency, of course, right? And there are three words that I, I hang my hat on, and that is, um, and they came to me in the discussion that I had, so I'm happy to explore more with you with uh, John Mack, who is the CEO of Morgan Stanley at the time. And he talked about the three H's and they are humility, they are honesty, and they are, in my book, I call it heart, but for lack of a better word, let's call it humanity or humanness, right? For those in your audience that are Christians, they, to me, are, they embody Jesus Christ. I, I look for a certain level of humility in people that wasn't there in the company before, you know, I came back. I think the more humble we are, the more willing we are to listen and uh, the more open we are to communicate and the more vulnerable that we can be, the more people tr actually trust us. So what I tried to get my management team to do over time was to be less about themselves and more humble about kind of where they stood in life. There were examples of things that happened that I think I could certainly talk about but that's what I look for is, is I, I wanted to see that change in people's heart over time, just becoming more humble about where we were as a company and who they were as people. And there were a couple of, frankly, I, I will tell you, um, Steve, we had to let go of four of the top 10 people in the company. We let go of 30% of our workforce. And, you know, when you, and, but we also, you know, I looked at the management team, top 10 people, and I said, you know, there's four of them that I don't think could cut it. And if I if I said, what was the one trait I didn't like about the four people we let go of, it was uh, a lack of humility and the ability to operate in a very, very difficult environment without it. Yeah, it just what's screaming in my head is the old quote that people don't leave jobs, they leave their manager. Absolutely. You know, they're, yeah, they're really looking for a, a culture where they can thrive and be seen and, and contribute. One of the aspects of your book, well, you, you talk about the importance of core values. And I, it's, I think it's unfortunate that the phrase core values 
it can mean two different things. Like I think we've all worked for an organization where the values are on the wall, but they're not practiced or in anyone's hearts, you know, that kind of thing. It's like the corporate values. Tell us how you help an organization generate authentic core values that are really lived out. Well, this might actually surprise you or your listeners that haven't read the book, but I I think it actually starts first and foremost. And the first thing I focus on in the book is this whole notion of pride and fear. I, I really believe that the two greatest challenges that leaders have today is their own pride and fear. And they almost have to look at themselves. And don't get me wrong. Uh, let me be specific about this. I, I actually think that some level of pride and some level of fear can be good. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I have a lot of pride in my children. I have pride in my relationship with my wife. I have pride in the employees that worked at Prologis. Um, I thought they were terrific. But hubristic pride, when it becomes more part of, uh, let me pound my chest and show you who I am, can be a real killer. I talk about examples in the book about FIFA, you know, the soccer organization, GM, Theranos. I mean, you, you, you can look at companies where leaders were just so prideful and it just destructed the company. And then there's this whole notion of fear. Again, some fears can be really good. You know, I, I talk about in the book, Taylor Swift, who gets out on stage probably five times a week uh, before COVID, says she gets nervous every time before she goes on stage. Yeah. And that nervousness, that little bit of fear actually gets her to perform at the top of her you know, abilities. And so a little bit of fear can be good. You know, I think um, Harvard Business Review did an article uh, way back about five years ago, talked about fears that CEOs have or that, that C-level executives have. And, and, the, and the top three fears were all about the leaders themselves. It was incompetence, fear of being politically attacked. You know, it was fear of being vulnerable. Well, you know what? When you get to that kind of fear, then all of a sudden you're looking over your shoulder all the time. You can't really be open with your employees because you're worried about what the consequences of that openness, that transparency is. And that's where fear begins to degrade leadership. So the first and for, first thing I talk about in my book is you, you got to get over your own pride and fear as a leader. And this relates to your book and, you know, the anxiety associated. I mean, think about anxiety and how it, it, it actually can be very destructive towards, towards leadership. And, and so anyway, I spend a considerable amount of time talking about that. And then I talk a lot in, about the, the world that we're in today, I think demands transparency. It demands transparency. And once you get over your pride and fear, I truly believe that the leaders that are most open, communicative, and transparent with people, good and bad, um, especially in bad times, are the ones that win in the long run. And they don't fear uh, being transparent. They don't fear the consequences and what people think of them and the vulnerabilities associated with being open and transparent about the things that are on their mind. I think those are two really critical, I should say two, pride, fear, and transparency. I think those are three critical things to really bringing out your values over time. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And that's part of what I loved about your book is how much of your attention begins below the surface, right? What's going on inside the leader? What what must the leader do to be well with him or herself? These core values, 
What would you do when you find one of your key team violating one of the core values? What's your next step? You know, another thing I talk about in the book is cultural vipers. And cultural vipers in, in, in an organization are organizational killers. Meaning cultural vipers, meaning somebody who is really good at what they do and you can't afford to lose them. And on the other hand, you can't afford to have them because everybody in the organization is talking about them. I mean, one of the things that I did, in addition to having candid conversations, I really believe that sometimes, again, leadership's not about you. It's about the people that you lead. I had a situation where I had two leaders, uh, one in particular, however, who, and I won't go into the details, but who was really terrific at what he did. I couldn't afford to lose him, but actually had some real issues with people, managing people. So I hired a coach and I asked the coach to come in and coach the entire management team, kind of the top 10 people in the company. And what this coach basically did extensive 360 degree evaluations for each of us, talked to, and, and the 360 degree evaluations meant that he talked to 20 people around us, meaning talk to your boss, talk to your peers, talk to the people, so, you know, even talk to our spouses, mm. Tried to learn as much as they could about us and, and got evaluations. I think that when a coach does extensive 360s, does extensive personality testing and is independent from the company, is willing to come in and then tell you what the collective group of people around you are saying, you'll learn a heck of a lot. And I would say that I really thought I was doing a great job, but I was not going to tell anybody that. But I kind of felt I was doing a pretty good job, you know, and this is about after a year after I'd come back and the coach looks at me and he says, well, well, let me tell you the good news and the bad news. He said, the good news is people like working for you. I said, that's good. Can we stop there? <laughs> he said, no, the bad news is that your empathy scores aren't all that high. I was like, what? Come on. It's like putting a dagger in my heart. What do you mean my empathy scores aren't high? I think I get along with people, this and that. He said, no, no, no. Well, here's the, here's the deal. He said, I'm just looking at all these interviews of people that work for you. And he said, you know what their biggest problem is? I said, no. He said, the biggest problem is they don't feel comfortable walking into your office. I said, what do you mean? I don't shoo anybody out of my office. He said, no, no, no. They don't feel comfortable walking into your office because you're so busy that you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off that they actually don't, they respect you enough that they don't actually want to bother you. And that's a problem because if you're going to try to build relationships with people, you can't be that way. And I thought to myself, wow, I mean, Steve, I'd have never thought about that in a million years, but what people were seeing in me was something I couldn't see in me myself. And, and they were seeing that this guy was trying to save the company on his own, right? And the fact of the matter is he needed to spend more time with all of his direct reports and let them save the company and be focused on them as opposed to focused on himself running, you know, turning around the company. And I'll tell you what, it was a life lesson. So the, the, the long-winded answer to your question is, I think sometimes it's not about you telling them when they're a culture of viper or they got a problem. I think it's a matter of trying to get, get help, bring people from the outside, let them congregate the information together in the whole and give you a much better picture of what you're really doing in an organization. That's a great, that's a great answer. I'm really grateful you fleshed that out. The, the cultural vipers, like you, I'm not suggesting that the previous CEO was that. I, I don't know, but 
you had indicated that the CEO that you replaced had significant blind spots and some narcissistic tendencies. Now that you're CEO, what do you do with a cultural viper who appears to be willfully blind to the impact of their behavior? I think to the extent that you can, you hire that coach, you let the coach tell them first and foremost, because it's an independent outside source. The second thing though, is that you can't run from it. I think the one thing that I found out is that if you let the cultural viper continue to go on, um, it will nine times out of 10, it will get worse and it will end up in mutiny. Um, meaning people will leave the organization. Like you said, people leave managers. They don't leave companies. You got to deal with it. And in some respects, you got to take a risk. In my case, one of those vipers came to me and said that he quit and threw down the coach's information on the desk and said, I'm out of here. And I said, okay, well, why are you out of here? And he said, I'm out of here because people don't respect, apparently, what I do. And I said, well, why is that? He said, because look at all these, this 360 degree evaluation. I mean, they're all bad. And I said, well, don't you think if you have 10 people telling you that you probably do have a problem? I mean, come on, yeah. right? And, and so if you run out of here, you think you're going to have, don't you think you're going to have the same problem? I mean, come on. I said, look, you can either walk out the door and be a coward or you can deal with this and recognize that our job as managers is to influence other people. And so begin to come to work with a different attitude. Well, this, this guy, I said, go home, talk to your wife and come back. He comes back the next day and he said, I'm going to change. Hmm. And I'm going to tell you something, Steve, we had a, a town hall meeting two or three days later and he gets up in front of everybody in the company. And this is people in Europe that are webcasting in. This is all throughout the United States, all employees, except Asia, they, all the people in Asia are sleeping. Um, they're watching it not live, but they'll watch it the next day. And he, he stands up and he, he starts bawling, crying. And I, I, I could not believe that this person who was as much a bully as he was actually admitted to people that he wanted to change. It was the best outcome that I could as a CEO ever expect. Now, so I dealt with it. I, actually, he dealt with it and then I dealt with it, but uh, we dealt with it in a very difficult way. At the end of the day, he changed. I think at the end of the day, 60 or 70% of them don't change. And um, I was just blessed. I was very fortunate because I needed him. And he was one of my best friends in the organization. And so, and when they don't change, you have to recognize that you got to lose them. You just got to lose them because building the right culture internally is more powerful than any one person. And that's hard when you're going through it and when you really, really need somebody. But at the end of the day, that's the right thing. It's a lot of wisdom in what you're sharing. It's it's bringing to mind a very well-known Christian psychologist, Dr. Henry Cloud. And he wrote a business book called Necessary Endings. And it's basically, mm -hmm. how do you know when someone has to go or change? And what I appreciate about it is, is it's, it's really just through the simple filter of how they respond to feedback about themselves. And I, I love how you modeled for us, Walt, where, where the coach came to you first and said, well, you your empathy is is tanked by your, the appearance that you're too busy to be interrupted. Yep. And your first response is heartbreak. Like, ah, oh, that's not the kind of person I want to be. And so yep. then what, what Henry Cloud says is, is when someone moves toward the light, to use a gospel term, 
Yeah, you can work. That's a, that's what the Bible describes as a wise person. You can work with that person all day, and just to hear in in a multinational corporation a a person kind of walk right up to the cliff and 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 then for you to call him a coward, like put pressure on that, and you know that he probably didn't get much sleep that night. His wife's probably saying, "Hey, uh, I'm now I'm now suggesting," but his wife's probably saying something like, "Well, I've had that experience with you as well." Like. I wouldn't mind a better husband. And then for, for him to have that humility to come back, I, that's such a beautiful story. I wish it happened more often. I love that that was your example. Yeah, and you know, this person, um, to, to be at the top of a company like this, you've got to be somewhat competitive. And I do think that um, perhaps I got his competitive juices flowing <laughs> yeah. the way, as opposed to the wrong way. But, you know, he actually, he looked at it as a challenge and he embraced it. Um, which I, I have to tell you, looking back on it, really was a seminal moment in my leadership journey, really. Yeah. Um, and he played it the right way, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, it could have gone the other way. And, and, and you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that there's some cookbook approach to get it to go the right way. I just don't think it, there is. I think you got to confront it. you got to communicate it. And you got to deal with it. And that's the only advice I can give to people, whether that be bringing in an outside coach to help you or you just dealing with yourself. I think I think it's better if you have someone outside to help you. But at the end of the day, uh, you got to deal with it and it may not work out. Well, and I do think you you helped us here because, you know, we all like a happy ending. Of course we do. But you were clear to say two things like 60 to 70 percent of the people won't respond that way. So this is a minority example, not a majority one. And. Also, I think you, you gave us a strong challenge like, look, you must, this has to be taken care of for the sake of the health of the organization. Yeah. Well, um, as suspected, we're getting, uh, getting tight on time. I, I, you know, when I read the book, I was like, okay, another fantastic book because it's dealing with what's going on under the surface in the leader, but you still have a lot of tactical advice for operating an organization. And there's a lot we could grab. The one I wanted to pick up on is your chapter on leading in today's times. Like obviously we're chatting in 2021. Mm. The last 12 months have been brutal. Um, and you just have these three metrics to look at, which is access, diversity, and acceleration. I, I found that so helpful as a church leader. I'd love you just to talk to us about each of those three, please. Sure. So let me just say this, uh, and it really was one of the things that inspired me to write the book too. So when I first took my my first job out of college, and this is in 1979, leadership to me back then was com command and control. Yeah. I mean, I, I was honestly, I was happy to be employed. I think leadership paid little attention to culture. Leadership was granted to those who had been around the longest, and and people weren't critical. They weren't vocal. And my job was really more transactional, right? I, I collected a paycheck and I, and they needed me for a job and I came to work. That's really the way companies used to be run. I think today it's so different. You know, Steve, when I took over as a CEO and I talk about this in the book, I think people, the, because of, it might be social media, there's just been so many changes in the world. And I'll talk about each of these, but I just think that people expect more from leaders today. The world's changing. So when I take over as a CEO, I, I get in my first day, I get over a thousand, one thousand urgent calls, emails, texts from the world, whether it be equity investors, bondholders, sell side analysts, employees, board members, rating agencies, news publications, you name it. 
That's what I got, right? Yeah. And they weren't asking, they were demanding yeah. that I get back to them, okay? And, you know, online chats were rampant about, you know, my leadership and was he going to be able to do this and turn it around and everybody's making predictions. What's the over-under, right? Our employees wanted answers. I mean, it was just, I began to realize that we live in a world with greater access to information, more diversity in people, and ex and, and all of this is accelerating. It's ex the progress is accelerating, right? And I call them the climates, you know, climates uh, of change. And on one hand, they create tremendous opportunities. They make us better at what they, we do. We're more productive, right? They they widen the spectrum for growth. And on the other hand, as a leader, you're really exposed. I mean, as a leader, I say in the book, we live in glass houses. We live in a world of glass houses, okay? Where the world can see our every move, everything we do. And so we're open, whether or not we like it or not. And the more open we are, the more people expect from us. And so I think probably to end this, I would just say that it requires a more constant, well, first of all, You've got fewer face-to-face -face interactions. You got a more distributed workforce. You got uh, an overabundance of false narratives that you got to deal with. You got more voices to be heard. I just think it requires a more constant drumbeat of transparency, uh, of communication. I think you have to be communicating what your values are always to people so that people don't forget and they always know who and where you are on things. I think you got to be leading by example more and making sure that you don't you don't mess up because until you mess up, people begin to question whether or not you really are. And I really think it requires leadership that enforces the human element, empathy, recognition, people, you know, balance. People crave purpose. People crave, you know, that you're focused on them and you care about them. I don't think that leadership was that way 30 years ago. I really don't. I think those that were 30 years ago were way, way ahead of their time. Today, I think if you don't have it, you don't, you don't succeed in the long run. Because I think you just get exposed in this environment of information overflow, um, where people think differently, diversity in people, and progress is accelerating so quickly. It, I think it just leaves you in the dust. So I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but... That's the way I think about leadership in this world. folks in 2019 about halfway through the year i released a book managing leadership anxiety i think pretty much all my listeners are familiar with it even if you haven't read it and it was really designed to help leaders notice and name what's going on in them and notice and name what's going on in their team and then 2020 came along and my phone started ringing a whole lot more and i wore out my zoom account and just listening to leaders and also being brought into churches and organizations and I would generally do a one-hour workshop or a, sometimes like a half-day workshop. But I think I knew and the attendees knew that it wasn't enough. Uh, people loved what, you know, people loved getting to name things. And I'd always put people in groups to chat. 
But I, in 2020, I was really spending some time. I, got, I did a lot of prayer and I, I actually consulted some wise people. And we came to the conclusion that my best offering is going to be some kind of an online membership. And so just in January 2021, I launched Capable Life. You can visit www.capablelife.me. First three letters are capable, a C-A-P, which is calm, aware, and present. And we are all about helping you function as a calm, aware, present human in the workplace and the home place. And it's the tools, at least we're beginning with the tools from my book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. But over time, as we grow, we're actually going to be bringing in other voices. But what we've done is I've just made a series of brief 10-minute videos. You can watch one a week. You can watch one a day. And then we have a confidential online forum. Right now, there's like over 80 comments of people who are trying these things and, and chatting with each other. We do a monthly Zoom with a certified coach in my materials. Every other month, we do a deep dive masterclass. You can participate in as little or as much as you want. It's $28 a month right now, 280 a year for those of you who enjoy a good deal. And I just want to encourage you, if you want 2021 to be different, you have to be different. It's not going to be different. Uh, and that's really what my guest Walt has been sharing as well. If you've been listening carefully, most of Walt's answers are about himself, not about his team. In, in the sense by which I mean working on himself, managing his own leadership so that his team can be well. And that's the heart and soul of Capable Life and Family Systems Theory. So www.capablelife.me. And with that, Walt, you now bravely enter the gauntlet of anxiety questions. So, uh, we don't need an exhaustive list, but just give us one or two situations in leadership that you know are always going to generate anxiety for you. Yeah, well, I have to tell you that I did read read you, your book before I, I got on this. So, um, I you know I, I I like some of the examples. I have to I have to just tell you you know you talk about recovering from mistake. Yeah. Uh, that, that yeah that that creates it and. Um, Self-doubt um, from time to time, sure. I mean, I, I get, you know, so I have internal and I have relational, as you as you talk about it, in that double bind uh, when you're in no-win situations uh, or paradoxes, you know, when, you, when you're asked to do something impossible. But I would say the biggest thing for me, Steve, is when somebody is relying on me, uh, my leadership, to be effective. And I saw that with the turnaround. I mean, I have to tell you, you know, I, I went to work in... Was I nervous every day? I Yeah, I actually was, you know, and because I felt the weight of the world and it wasn't turning around. It really wasn't my reputation that I was worried about. I felt always felt like I, I could deal with that. It was someone else's expectations not being met that like, you know, our employees jobs depended on it or their families depended on them keeping their jobs, you know, or. The board of directors, you know, they, they, they had personal reputations at stake, right? So making sure I didn't disappoint them or bondholders who lent us the money, um, making sure that they all got, be, all got paid back, you know, or our shareholders who invested in us. I mean, you know, so I, I felt the weight of the world from expectations that other people had when someone was sort of relying on me to succeed. And that was probably created the most anxiety to me as a leader um, because I, I, because I had to succeed there. Or there was a, it wasn't like I had to convince somebody that, well, if I didn't succeed, let me convince you why I couldn't. No, that wasn't the case. Yeah. It was zero sum. You either did or you didn't. And I think that created probably the biggest things that I had. Yeah. Oh, very good. Thank you. 
You know, it's, it's my experience that oftentimes a leader is the last to know when they're not okay. Mm. Who in your mm-hmm. life knows before you know? Well, um, I rely on two, two avenues for the truth. Uh, the first avenue is my wife. She is a very, very clairvoyant person. <laughs> and she always sees things before me. I can tell you, like, when I say always, like 99.9% of the time. The second one is God. You know, I think the biggest challenge I have is not talking to him, but listening to him. I find myself, first of all, you know, people used to ask me all the time, my employees ask me, you know, how are you getting through this? And I would say, um, well, you know, this is a secular environment. It's a public company. But you asked me, so I'm going to tell you. I got up at 4 o'clock this morning, which I normally did, 4 or 4.30, and I prayed for an hour. And and mostly my prayer my prayer life could be a half an hour to an hour every day. I prayed about you. I prayed about the company. I prayed about the things that we're doing, you know. And and I found that to be a, a you know really telling for me um, op- opportunity to get up. And um, if you believe in the fact that God created this universe, and it, it's almost a minor step to believe that God can actually help you in your problems. Mm-hmm help you solve the problems that are that are ahead of you and so um he knows before me and um and my wife knows before me <laughs> and so those are the two that those are the two avenues of the truth for me oh, that's great yeah you know well one of the things we study in my field is the impact of our family of origin and how we bring our family mm-hmm. of origin into every situation yep. i wonder if you'd be willing to share one trait you inherited from your family that really is an asset in leadership and one that gets in the way. Yep. I talked about humility before. I would say um, self-deprecation and humility, number one, both my mother and my father, um, not thinking too much of themselves. They, first of all, they, they did not come from, uh, uh, I mean, they were, they were um, children of immigrant parents, both of them. And um, didn't really have that much. We didn't have that much growing up financially, at least. Um, but we had a tremendous amount of love and support, you know. And, but they were really humble per- people. And and I never thought that I deserved to lead, Steve. I always thought that God put me there for a reason. And and so that self-deprecation and that humility uh, was the one family trait. I also think humanity is another one. You know, when I talk about my three H's, the golden rule, treating people the way that you want to be treating, have, having having empathy and recognizing others, serving others. Um, my parents really brought that out. Um, so those are two things. I think in terms of what I would love to perhaps have uh, been better at or, or have to have them push me a little bit more of, we did not come from a reading family, interestingly enough. And I wish I would have read more as a kid. Um, I think there's so much wisdom in people that I see who read a book a week, let's say, for example, or even a book a month. And I've always had to force myself, really force myself to read. So it's a family trait that I think I would say it it wasn't something that got in the way, but it was certainly something I wish that I did better. Yeah, very good. All right. Our last question uh, is based on the simple premise of John in 1 John 4, where, where John says that perfect love casts out fear. And mm. in my study of anxiety, I, I just found it fascinating, this this concept that 
love can displace anxiety. And therefore, I think it's really important to know the different kinds of ways we encounter love, whether it's the love of God or the love of another human, which to me is a gift from God. So to that end, well, when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? Every morning when I get up and I spend time, quiet time with my creator. I mean, there's just no other time. Honestly, it's like the day is a battle. And I'm not saying that, trying to say that in a negative way, but you know, the time that I have early in the morning, and I like to do it in the dark when there's no sounds, and when I haven't read my first email, I like to do it before my mind is completely consumed by the world. I, so every morning I get up and I talk to talk to my creator and I have a sense of security, a sense of peace and a sense of comfort. And then when it gets light and the first call comes in and about 10 emails are there by six in the morning, my life gets chaotic and I actually never can recover from from that peace and security. And when I say never recover, I never have the same level of peace and security as I have at five o'clock in the morning in the dark with the Lord. And that is actually when I feel the most loved. Friends, it's Walt Rakowicz. His book is Transfluence. It's excellent. You can uh, follow Walt on waltrakowicz.com. I'll have links to that in the show notes. I think you're hearing his heart come through. Obviously, Walt brings massive amounts of business experience to his work and his consulting. But uh, as I read the book, I, I would simply describe it like some of my favorite leadership books. It's a human flourishing, human thriving book. It's how to do well at being a human being. So, Walt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your heart with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Really, really, uh, really enjoyed it. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.